Yeah, I don't know. Uh, like, but wait, wait, hold on. What is the um the hearing about again? So, like, just about his union busting, or yeah, it's part of the because Bernie's the head of the like help committee, which is like health, education, whatever the other two stand for. But like, Labor? Uh, <laughs> he's basically using it as an opportunity to like interrogate bosses about illegal union busting. Uh, with I don't really know if there's going to be any tangible material results out of that, but uh, on the plus side, we do get to see folk, people squirm on TV, which is, I suppose, something. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, the whole thing is basically like, you know, Starbucks has been lying for the last year and however many months about n- not union busting, and so I think the whole point of this is to force – Schultz to to basically either lie on like in front of the Senate and say we don't do any union busting or you know force him to squirm there with all the PR legalese speak where he denies union busting but doesn't explicitly deny it so as not to be legally liable for perjury. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, I was <laughs> say can't wait to get Howard Schultz on perjury charges. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a CEO, he'll be well coached up. But Yeah, I mean Bernie is probably going to be able to grill him pretty straightforwardly, but I there's only there's Legal teams have invented a lot of language over the years that allows people to get around admitting anything, even when they're in front of the Senate for three or five hours. I don't know how long this hearing will be. They probably can only get him for 45 minutes. But <laughs> I imagine it's going to be a lot of like, uh, so did you do this union busting? And then Schultz is just like, well, we are committed to actually discussing yeah. with the workers that are in the union right now. Yeah. And then well, that's it. <laughs> And then Schultz's response to all of the things that have been happening recently and the increased scrutiny on his tactics has been to do his favorite thing, which is stop being the CEO CEO of Starbucks, (laughs) something he loves so much that this is the third time he's done it. (laughs) Yeah, because that's the thing. Like I saw people celebrating him quitting on on Twitter today, which, hey, no shade. Fuck Howard Schultz. Uh, uh, certainly would be glad to see him go. I just think, though, as as you mentioned, he's kind of a recurring villain. Mm-hmm. Like he he has these arcs where he disappears, and you think that we have defeated him, and then he returns. Yeah, but so. then he came back, <laughs> <laughs> or somehow Palpatine returned. I guess if you're an yeah, old yeah. weird nerd, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, he like remember he was going to run for president in this last cycle. Oh yeah. Well, but then, and then he was going to everybody be, told him not to. <laughs> he was going to be Hillary's. Uh, labor secretary. <laughs> oh my god, that was an incredibly brain diseased proposition. I mean, things that have aged like milk. <laughs> well, and that was the funny thing is because you'll have people be like, "Oh, there's there's still, of course, all the libs that are still mad about 2016," and you you like. Like you bring that up, and they'll be like, "Well, he look, she was still going to be so much better than Trump." And I think Trump's labor secretary was like a McDonald's franchisee who owned like a hundred McDonald's. I'm like, that's the same thing. <laughs> if anything, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. If anything, Schultz is worse because he's like in charge of nine thousand stores or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, that's like the, that was the thing with Trump and Hillary. Was it like, do you want somebody who's more nakedly evil or more competently evil? Yeah. Like, like pick your what, poison. How, like <laughs> how, how about this progressive veneer that means nothing? How about yeah. that American <laughs> populace? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, obviously we're glad to see Schultz go. Although that was the other funny thing is I saw people like phrasing it as he's resigning so he doesn't have to testify. And I'm like, that's not how this works. He's still testifying. <laughs> yeah. 
It's uh, not like when you quit a job, you're no longer responsible for anything that happened while you were there. <laughs> you well, know, it's, it's like, like, <laughs> like if you could, qu- if quitting your job got you out of subpoenas, you, you would yeah. see like half of Wall Street. So well, like, let's, I would let's keep a couple honest. backup jobs lying around so I could <laughs> I quit mean, them. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. There are lots of businesses that just close and reopen under other names to avoid liability. So it's oh, not yeah. like that tactic doesn't work in some circumstances. Yeah, no, no, it's, definitely, it's, it definitely won't in this one. It's different for a corporate entity versus a person. And that's why, you know, Citizens United and all of those other rulings that have basically established that, like, yes, you can just treat a corporation like a person are so insane, not just because, like, of all the obvious reasons, but also because it's like, I'm sorry, a corporation can't be held accountable. <laughs> it's not yeah. a, It's not a person. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, it will... That's it's because I think people are now going to be like, well, oh, the hearing won't be as interesting because he's mm-hmm. stepping down. I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, 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 I think the only reason you might think that is if you expected to get some material change in in Starbucks's mm-hmm. union busting campaign out of this hearing. Which I'm just like, I, I think that's way too lofty of a thing to expect to come out of this. I'm like, I would <laughs> I've go got a bridge with- between the lower and upper peninsulas <laughs> of Michigan. I'd like to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but like I, I mean, the thing I'm looking forward to it is literally again just watching Howard Schultz be forced to listen to someone who like is perhaps not kissing his ass for mm-hmm. literally five minutes because that's so foreign to his existence as a CEO. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, it's something that's guaranteed to be interesting. Oh. Are we doing the intro? Oh, you meant our show. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I mean, in that case. your most interesting labor show the labor show that makes you say hmm curious (laughs) my name is john (laughs) i'm dan and i'm lena and we're an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much if you support us on patreon we really do appreciate it if you don't it's a great place to get our bonus content it's really the only place Uh, it's where we post it anyway and if you're not in the discord already (laughs) hop in there it's another fun place to hang out if you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet message us on patreon and we will get them to you and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or just say work stoppage sent us here in the chat of the howard Schultz uh, congressional hearing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh man, yeah. But so to start off this week, we will not actually be talking about Starbucks. Uh, nice. We have yet another huge win by workers organizing in academia. They just don't stop coming, folks. Last Thursday, March sixteenth, the workers at the University of Chicago, the the graduate student workers, voted in. Another enormous landslide, 1,696 votes to 155, a 92% margin, Uh, just, you know, had it running away for voting to join the UE, the United Electrical Workers. So this is very exciting. It actually caps off. This isn't just like, you know, a, a drive that's been formed over the last year. This is really the culmination of 20 years almost of organizing at the University of Chicago. 
That's so many different, like, almost generations of learning there because these this is not, like, a, a generally a lifelong thing that people are in. The graduate students are going through their graduate program. Am I wrong? Like, this is something that there's a lot of new people who come in very often, and when people, you know, get their doctorates or whatever, they, they move on to other uh, sorts of employment, right? Yeah, I mean, this bargaining unit is like about 3,000 students. So if you want that as like a snapshot of the size of the number of grad student workers. So if you consider, again, that this has been going on, these workers have been fighting for a union at the University of Chicago since 2007. So 16 years. So many people in so many years. Yeah, so that's tens of thousands uh, of student workers who have been either involved or been, you know, at UChicago while this organizing has been going on. Very um, impressive. Yeah, and, and so it, the f- first decade or so of organizing by the workers from 2007 to 2017 was largely, you know, building from the ground up, building a movement very slow, you know, takes a lo- long time when you're, especially when your bargaining unit is 3,000 workers. I mean, it's a lot mm-hmm. of folks to organize. Uh, but in 2017, this because that's a, kind of a weird case for this, this is actually technically the second union election that with a with the second union that the workers at the University of Chicago have won because back in 2017 they actually won a union election to be represented uh, that time to be affiliated with the AFT the American Federation of Teachers and they won pretty handily then too by a 2 to 1 margin however University of Chicago, uh, bastion of reaction and uh, the Austrian School of Economics as they are attempted to not only overturn the workers' election at the school, but to then hopefully use that case as a legal precedent, because again, this is back in 2017 under the Trump administration with with his control of the NLRB. They were concerned that the school, the University of Chicago, would use that case were it to go in their favor to attempt to overturn the previous year's uh, ruling with the students of Columbia that opened up the organization of grad students nationwide. And so uh, hoping to not, you know, completely invalidate all grad student organizing across the country, the workers actually withdrew their certification even though they had won their vote, which, like... That's a very interesting strategy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well... it must have been incredibly difficult to do that too. I mean, uh, it, it shows a lot of solidarity with, with other, uh, student workers across the country because like, I mean, wow, to, to throw 10 years, not throw 10 years of organizing away, but to, to have it amount to a lot less than you expected to, to just have it as, as, um, solidarity to fall back on going forward. I mean, that's, that's gotta be something that makes you really grit your teeth when it happens. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's essentially the same thing that Duke is trying to do to their grad union there mm-hmm. right now, although they haven't had their election yet. But those workers, of course, are pretty confident, and I think reasonably so, that Duke's strategy is really mostly right now a form of stalling. That it's like, realistically, with the current makeup of the NLRB, the likelihood of, you know, the A, Duke's case being successful and then B being used to overturn organizing precedents extremely low. Uh, so, you know, they're not likely to have to be put in that same situation, but yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a, a unfortunate, but also extremely far sighted move mm-hmm. by the workers at Chicago. And thankfully now they've had their second election, you know, six years later 
and won by an even heavier margin, which is, I think, super impressive. Oh my gosh, I know. They were they were two thirds and now they've crushed it. It's like over ninety percent is that's more than a landslide, right? That's like no contest. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And now that they've won, I mean they're getting ready to fight for their first contract. They stated their goals of getting uh their living stipend raised up to forty thousand dollars from the current $33,000. The workers are also demanding dental and vision insurance, as well as to extend their health care coverage to their dependents, which is something that we've talked about consistently with other grad student unions because they've been consistently characterized as just individuals who don't have dependents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, along with that, child care subsidies are being demanded and stronger protection against discrimination. I mean, these are all very classic things that are that grad students are organizing around and the fact that there are so many of these new unions with a lot of these similar demands makes me think that these demands are gonna have to get met real soon otherwise you know we're gonna see way bigger strikes in the coming years yeah well i mean uh the the vibrancy of the organizing has only grown you know during the entire time that they've been doing this for you know close to going on two decades now and, you know, you, you can feel that solidarity when you hear from the uh, ac- academic workers themselves. I mean, we heard from Naomi Rao, who told Truth Out earlier this year, quote, I think what's really powerful about a union is it really fights a lot of the isolation and alienation that people feel in grad school and other types of work. It's a really powerful way to come together with people and fight for something tangible in your own life that you're experiencing every day and that you can make a real difference in. That's a pretty incredible feeling. End quote. And I mean, I think that really does just speak volumes to like why they've been able to maintain this upswing in in enthusiasm for the union to the point where they were able to nail a 92 percent vote. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's that sort of solidarity that I think it's going to take to bargain for a contract at a place like the University of Chicago. So really great to see this win the like incredible unity of all these students and just looking forward to next week when the next gigantic bargaining unit in academia also goes landslide for a union. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, wait, which one? Who knows? It's a new one every week. It's true. <laughs> it is true. It's, they're almost get, they're getting the, the old Starbucks treatment. Yeah. Um, I, it's, exactly. It's genuinely hard to keep track. <laughs> but speaking of week-to-week news, one of the things that we reported on last week was the TCG player union that won their election at you know eBay. Well, immediately after we finished, or maybe even while we were recording, I mean, uh, eBay escalated its union-busting campaign, uh, retaliating against the workers for organizing by firing an active union supporter for what are, as usual, very, very vague and nonsensical rules. So, like, last Monday, uh, the very next business day after the successful union vote, prominent union supporter Iris St. Lucie was fired by the company in what is th- what the what the union is calling a retaliatory move. The company claims that she was fired for failing to meet metrics. What metrics? We don't know uh, because they literally did not tell us. It's just this is straight up like Amazon's. Like, yeah, you didn't fit our black box algorithm, and so goodbye, uh, which has also been one of the tactics that Amazon has used to fire union supporters. So it's not surprising that eBay would take the same tact. And uh, additionally, as 
reported by the union on Twitter, Iris had invoked her wine garden rights at the time, and which means that you can legally demand to have a union representative uh, next to you if you feel like basically what it is you say, is this meeting going to lead to uh, disciplinary action? And they have to tell you yes or no. And if they say yes, then you have the right to demand union representation in the meeting. And otherwise, they have to postpone the meeting or like do whatever they can to make sure that the representation gets there. And uh, she was just straight up denied that right. Yeah, well, I think it's funny because like one of the ways that corporations sell this whole the, – the way that they have regimented – uh, labor under with the use of metrics is they're like, no, no, metrics are good. You'll like the metrics because the metrics give us objective criteria by which to rate. So like, look, if you're a good worker, you'll have better metrics. So this takes, it gets rid of favoritism. And then they, but then the thing is like, that is of course always 100% of the time a lie mm-hmm. <laughs> because then they just do this shit. They're like, well, this person was fired because uh, she wasn't meeting metrics. And you're like, oh, can I see the metrics? And like, no. No, you can't. They're proprietary. (laughs) I mean, and it's like we see this every single time with every single company. They're like, oh, they were fired for attendance. Oh, they were fired for not meeting metrics. Oh, they were fired for health and safety. Oh, they were fired for not meeting dress code. Or even when these companies never fire people for those things on a normal day-to-day basis. And also, when it's a day after your union election or a Mm -hmm. day after a worker has spoken out during a captive audience meeting or a day after uh, any concerted protected labor activity i mean it's it's so transparent it's like it's not even paper thin it's like it's like a sheet of cling wrap yeah yeah it, it, it's it's because that's the thing it's like you know we the journalists always have to write like uh it, what the union is calling a retaliatory move right. and so i end up mimicking that sometimes when i write the notes but it's like in what is a retaliatory move and is clear to mm-hmm. anyone with eyes to see mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's clear union busting. It's a clear retaliatory firing, but again, because of at will employment in the U S and the fact in this case, really that, you know, labor breaking labor law has basically no, uh, penalty, uh, then, you know, cause again, like they, they broke the law by refusing to allow her union representation at this meeting. That is a clear labor violation about as clear as it gets. Well, yeah. yeah, and it's and it's said very clearly by CWA Secretary Treasurer Sarah Steffens, who said, quote, not only are eBay and TCG player violating labor law, the company is undermining its workers' rights to union representation, fair wages, dignity on the job, and ability to support their families. TCG player needs to stop these attacks and commit to bargaining a contract in good faith, uh, end quote. And, like... I don't know. I mean, it's it's very it's very like plain to see, especially probably for our listeners. Like, you know, they we see this all the time. Obviously, this is retaliation. Well, it's like when people uh, who represent labor unions say things. I often find myself enthusiastically agreeing because I agree with the sentiment. But in this case, I'm enthusiastically agreeing because those are just simply true facts that you can yeah. observe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, like she's not being particularly militant and certainly not radical and just laying out this is what literally happened. Mm-hmm. And exactly. And, 
And it fits uh, the pattern that has been laid out by TCG Player in this campaign. Because again, in the lead up to their union vote, as we talked about when, last week when we talked about this, like the CWA has already had to file ULPs against TCG Player for a whole host of union busting tactics. You know, captive audience meetings, surveillance, and as as we talked about last time, uh, the like encouraging workers to call the police on their coworkers if they ask them about unionizing. So. Yeah, this is just the latest in the pattern. Although I will say a lot about their the union busting campaign from TCG Player, while it's been very aggressive, has seemed to me, at least in comparison with some of the other places we, we follow, kind of amateurish. Yeah. Like the the telling your coworkers to call the police on each other when you work in the same office. Like I, I get why Geico tried that with workers who were going house to house because of remote work. I see right. how they could th- see that being effective, but it's like call the cops on somebody who works in the next cube over. And I know that some of these workers are remote, but the whole idea is just nonsense. And like now you're firing someone in retaliation after they already won the, you're supposed to do the retaliatory illegal firing before the union vote as an intimidation technique. All this is going to do is bring the workers together yeah, like, like, because if I'm a member of this bargaining unit and I was all and I was kind of on the fence about is this a good idea? Well, now I've seen that one of my coworkers just lost their job for complete bullshit reason, and who is defending them immediately? The union. Yeah. So, like, to me, I'm just like you, TCG player. You just made the best case possible that you could make to your own workers about why they need union representation. So like, well, I mean, maybe TCG player player is just so cheap that they're not even willing to hire like a competent union busting firm. And they're just throwing <laughs> shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. And honestly, God willing, inshallah, TCG player, keep making mistakes, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like, keep, keep, yeah. It's like, as your attorney, I'm advising you to keep posting that shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, Iris, the worker who was fired in retaliation for organizing, uh, said in a statement, quote, throughout our union campaign, TCG player management has waged a ruthless intimidation campaign to stop us from joining our union, including holding mandatory meetings with anti-union propaganda and creating a culture of fear among employees. They want to make an example of us, but this egregious action only reveals how terrified TCG player and eBay are of our collective power. Oh, she called them paper tigers. (laughs) (laughs) She's right, though. She's 100% correct, because that's the, again... You, you only do the retaliatory firing after the election if you're like, fuck, we lost. What do we do? I have no idea. And you just lash out blindly because mm-hmm. you got owned and don't know how to respond. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. I, I almost feel – is that is that a segue into our next story? Like, yeah. Uh, lashing out and <laughs> – <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> Instead of paper uh, tigers, we have uh, le tigre, tigre, uh, I don't know how to say paper in French. (laughs) uh, It's papier. Papier. (laughs) Le tigre du papier. (laughs) There we go. We're we're teaching you things that you didn't want to know, folks. That's right. French. French. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, obviously, you know, we're going across the the pond for another follow-up. I mean, we're a labor show. We can't not talk about the gigantic protests that are going on in France right now. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've been covering this attempt by French President Emmanuel Macron to raise the retirement age in France, essentially stealing two years 
of the lives of every member of the working class by forcing them to retire not at 62, but at 64. And that bill we had mentioned had passed the Senate in France last week, but it was approaching the vote on the lower house. And apparently Macron was a bit worried that he wasn't going to have all the votes he needed, that the, the mass protests that have been going on for weeks in France, where you've seen more and more escalations with, you know, electric electricity shutdowns, strikes at deliveries to gas stations, rail strikes, teacher strikes, nurse, I think nurses strikes. Uh, you know, you've had in millions, literally millions of French workers in the street making it extremely clear how much of the French population, well over two-thirds, are opposed to this bill. And so McCarthy got a little worried that all those protests might make a few of his supporters in mm. the lower house a bit uh, squirrely on whether they should vote for him or not. And so he decided, you know what, this democracy thing is, e even this bourgeois democracy, the fake democracy that we have, this is really inconvenient. What if I could just pass this law by decree? Ooh. <laughs> uh, ruling by decree? <laughs> Ah, I've never heard of that in France. Yeah, the French yeah, so people are going to respond to this in, I think, just the most interesting way possible. And I, <laughs> I honestly wish Macron the best in a Sixth Republic jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Macron invoked a, uh, what, I mean, seemed to me to be this obscure article in the French Constitution. Uh, I know nothing about the, like, legal history of the development of this particular <laughs> French Constitution. But uh, I feel confident that this is a holdover from the de Gaulle era are you kidding uh, me dan this is one of their banner um articles <laughs> <laughs> yeah. article 49.3 of the french constitution which somehow gives macron the ability to just approve a law without a vote uh which is bizarre and to me i'm like what's the difference between this and a constitutional monarchy like yeah. if he can literally just be like uh, we will have this law. No, you won't vote on it. It'll get passed. The only, because the only uh, response to this that the members of parliament could even have if they object to it is a vote of no confidence to dissolve the entire government, including their own seats. Sixth Republic. Sixth Republic. <laughs> Sixth Republic. <laughs> so, uh, you know, of course, in response to this, the protests have only gotten larger mm -hmm. because the people were already mad about the prospect of the representatives who don't really represent them voting for the bill. But now for Macron to just say, oh, we can't we can't let the politicians be trusted with a little thing like voting. <laughs> we'll just go ahead and approve this and it'll be great. And everyone clapped, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and France is now uh, under just complete, it's, it's like August out there. Everybody's on vacation. Uh, <laughs> but no, of course, this has led to an uproar in France and an and, and outrage from a lot of opposition politicians. Uh, there was a vote of no confidence that was immediately called for and was actually held today, uh, but uh, did not go through. It, it appears that basically that Macron was making a very cynical gambit here uh, that I, I mean, I think he was right about, which was that the protests may have moved just enough of the people in his governing coalition that if they held the vote, that his bill might have failed. Mm -hmm. But, he was betting that those same people who may have been moved to vote against the pension reform would not be so moved as to vote themselves out of office. And so he's like, I bet I'll pass a no confidence vote, even if I wouldn't pass the vote on this bill. 
And so far, that has proven to be correct. However, that does leave out the whole factor of the French people yeah. uh, in play here. Yeah, it's a very and, uh, Bonapartist solution. <laughs> yes, extremely so. And, and so in response, you know, the, the strikes and protests have just continued to ramp up in France. Uh Laurent Berger, the secretary general of the CFDT union, told reporters, quote, by resorting to Article 49.3, the government demonstrates that it does not have a majority to approve the two-year postponement of the legal retirement age. The political compromise failed. Workers must be listened to when it is their work being acted upon, end quote. And so in response to this, you know, the protests have been enormous, uh, millions of people out there protesting this weekend. Uh, and, and there is now a plan for a major escalation once again of the protests this Thursday, uh, specifically, uh, one of the, uh, folks that was interviewed at the protests on the ground by Reuters, a, a unionist with the CGT, Christophe Junot, who works at a refinery and who has been on strike now for weeks has said, quote, from next week on, we will take things up a gear, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> which when the French have already been lighting shit on fire for two mm -hmm. weeks and shutting down all of the like electricity in parts of the country, the we're going to kick things up a gear is frankly for me exactly what I want to hear. <laughs> oh, it's so <laughs> impressive to see them doing shit that would absolutely put every conservative American's jaw on the floor and to have the French say like, there's plenty of headroom left on the mixer. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I saw plenty of people making who were interviewed in at these protests like, you know, like, uh, they still got those guillotines out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I saw, like, well, you know, gra graffiti that said, like, Macron decapitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, you mentioned that, uh, you know, being things being on fire, it's partially because of the massive trash pileups, right? Mm -hmm. Like, basically, since the sanitation workers have also been on strike, the amount of trash has been just, like, there are, it is all over the streets of Paris. And uh, they just seemed like really good uh, light sources, apparently, <laughs> for a lot of the protesters. And there are lots of videos out there on the internet of Paris literally just being on fire. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a big trash fire. Well, and that was the other thing is... I. I don't know if this is a real quote because, again, I saw it on Twitter, so this could very well be apocryphal. But there were people that were reporting last week, right when Macron did this, that he was asked like if there was anything that could convince him to uh, turn around and, and, and pull back this pension reform bill. And supposedly his answer was, if Paris is on fire, and the workers are just like, all right, I bet. bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, look. We don't know. I mean, he's very determined to ram this through, and 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 Macron has held out through protests on other austerity measures before. So I like we shouldn't assume that you know, even just by setting a bunch of shit in Paris on fire, that that's going to be enough. Like I I love the French protests. I don't want to poo poo them at all. I think they're great. I wish we had more you know raucous protests here in the U.S. Like a lot of the stuff that they do there, but like. I really hope they mean it when they say they're going to take things up a gear because Macron has now passed almost all of the legal hurdles that he has to pass. So, like, you, there needs to be a real organized movement, perhaps, of a revolutionary variety. Because <laughs> uh, if Macron's not going to listen to, you know, the, the clear demonstrations for weeks that not just, like, a small minority, but the vast majority of French people who have, and it's been shown in poll after poll after poll, want nothing to do with this bill... 
if he's going to continue to just autocratically ram it through, at a certain point, the legal means of redress run out. So... Yeah, well, they're not shy about it, and I think Macron <laughs> might just be intransigent, intransigent and narcissistic enough to hold out on this. You know, I think there's a certain level of pride that goes into this, too. I remember when he first got elected that he said, said he was going to set out to be a Jupiterian ruler, yeah. which I thought was just, <laughs> why would you tell on yourself like that? Like, <laughs> What does yeah. that mean? What Jupiterian, does that even mean? It just means like distant and not really concerned with the minutia. The de- he's basically saying like I, I am was like, I am not with you working people. <laughs> like like a, a, a huge ball of gas. <laughs> well, I mean he's speaking in the Roman sense, you know, Jupiter like progenitor of the gods, you know, that sort of thing. All he's right, just, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll take huge narcissism. It's like that tweet where it's like uh, the, the brutal microorganism that created the Irish potato famine, and it's like a little weird to call the British a brutal microorganism, but I'll <laughs> yeah. take it. <laughs> yeah. So we'll be following this closely, obviously. I mean, it's going to be in the news. Uh, definitely all eyes on France this week. Yeah, well, to go to a story that we've talked about so many times, uh, and unfortunately, each time... Can I just, real quick, disclaimer on this story. Everything in this story is allegedly. There we go. <laughs> oh, right, because, yeah, we have to do this every time, because this is a uh, a law firm. We talked about the Hudson workers who organized with the United Electrical Workers, like, Back in September of 2021, it was one covered- of the first interviews we did. Yeah, yeah, it was one. Yeah, one of the first interviews. It's been so long. Wow. Uh, well, they have been constantly seeing retaliation for being one of the first like legal firms to unionize. Uh, and once again, uh, the company is alleged taking their- retaliation. And once, <laughs> and once again, Look, the company. If I is keep chiming in, it'll be a bit. Their, it'll be funny. Taking their <laughs> alleged. Retaliation to new heights. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this has, of course, been a very long saga, as, as Lena was saying. Again, we're now at a year and a half since we interviewed the workers at Hudson. And just to recap a little bit of this, in May of last year, one of the workers who was allegedly fired for organizing at Hudson was sent a cease and desist letter from the company based on allegations against them that the worker says are tar- totally false. Uh, the workers say that that they and their the, these workers who were allegedly fired in retaliation say that they and their families have experienced harassment campaigns against their social media account they believe to have been directed from folks within the company. Uh, now, now there has been another escalation in this like you know back and forth. Uh, about the organizing campaign where Hudson has filed a lawsuit against the two worker organizers who were fired, calling their union drive, quote, a conspiracy to benefit, end quote, one of the workers' families, uh, which is a really <coughs> weird way to describe a union drive. <laughs> well, yeah. also, like, conspiracy to benefit, I have something to point out. What about a corporate structure? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's a conspiracy yeah. to benefit. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, well, but I, then even then, like cons- conspiracy to benefit a family, like what with higher pay? It, uh, yeah, it's really <laughs> unclear. It seemed to me like the implication that they were making is that somehow they were going to form this union and then use the union structure or the dues in some way. Again, 
Speculation. I don't know. I haven't read the documents, but it seemed like the implication was that like they were implying that one of the worker organizers was intending to use the structure of the union to personally benefit them. That, that doesn't seem to- very possible. Again, they organized with UE. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like the most democratic union out there. So I'm like, I don't really understand how that would have been possible. But, and I mean, specifically- We got to get RFK out here on the job, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. So anyways, we wanted to bring this up because again, you know, these workers have been trying, you know, they've been facing a lot of hardship over the last year and a half since they've been trying to organize at Hudson facing all of these these difficult patches and so like we wanted to you know just bring this up because there has been this new development with the lawsuit uh and these workers while of course they believe the lawsuit to be baseless unfortunately defending against the lawsuit's very expensive in this case has already racked up legal bills for the workers of almost thirty thousand dollars so they have put together a fundraiser to help uh offset you know some of those legal costs if possible so we are definitely going to put a link to that in our show notes and definitely recommend folks donate to that as a very good cause uh because you know defending against lawsuits like this is really really tough and you know if they are successful whether they have any merit or not, that can have a real chilling effect on people, you know, being willing to actually stand up and try and unionize somewhere that is not maybe your typical spot where you would expect to see that. Yeah, this is an incredibly difficult fight, and we want to show as much solidarity to these workers as we can because, mm-hmm. it, like, we need to be able to unionize every single sector. Every worker deserves a union. And if this is a particularly difficult fight, that means we need to fight particularly hard for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of difficult fights, let's talk about the fight <sighs> to reform the UAW. <laughs> this one was a real sweat for a while there. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, the Curry team is still making the <laughs> everybody sweat, which is very frustrating, so... Uh, you know, we mentioned last week that we had expected last week to have an update for everybody on the UAW election. And we didn't have one because this shit keeps getting dragged out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, we can't say that it's been 100% wrapped up. But now, after seemingly endless delays, we do have a pretty clear picture of the outcome of the election even if it hasn't officially been called. So last Thursday, March 16th, the federal monitor who's been, you know, observing the UAW elections as part of the consent decree from the corruption trials from a couple of years ago, uh, finally began counting some of the challenged ballots that had been left out as potentially determining the outcome in the extremely close election between uh, incumbent, admin caucus, current president of the UAW, Ray Curry, and the reform slate, UAW Members United, backed by the UAWD, who are backing Sean Fain as their their candidate for president of the union. And Fain had uh, been ahead by about 500 votes after the counting of most of the ballots, but there were a few thousand challenge ballots remaining. And since they could make the difference, there has been, of course, a lot of discussion back and forth on which ones to count. And so finally, last Thursday... A bunch of those were counted and a bunch of them were set aside permanently. And we still don't have the final count. But what we do have is essentially a more or less decisive number because we now know 
that Sean Fain remains in the count officially as of this recording, as far as I am aware, about 500 votes ahead of Ray Curry. There are fewer than 600 challenged ballots left to count. So unless those ballots are like 95% in Curry's favor, which we have no reason to believe and is statistically enormously unlikely, then Sean Fain won the election. Mm -hmm. And so essentially what we know is that Sean Fain won the election. That's right. But... But allegedly, (laughs) no, I'm not worried about getting sued by Ray Curry. So (laughs) no, it's just fun to say now. (laughs) So, but now we're left in this incredibly frustrating limbo that is unfortunately very reminiscent of some very recent bourgeois elections in the United States, uh, where we pretty much know what happened, but one side is refusing to concede. So you're telling Uh, me, wait, you're saying that the admin caucus is doing a stop the steal campaign? <laughs> Look, I don't want to be a resistance lib and compare everything to January 6th. But, I mean, kind of, that's basically what Ray Curry's team is doing. I'm not wow. expecting, I'm not expecting admin caucus guys to show up and like, I don't know, storm the UAW headquarters or something. <laughs> Like storm the Walter Ruther Memorial Library, or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen. But yeah, no, it's very frustrating that that's you know, right, we, Sean Fain. You need to check your altimeter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, but uh, so yeah, it's very frustrating. And uh, you know, the UAW Members United team wants to move forward and take office and get going because you know it's just a couple of months until we're going to be at contract negotiations with the big three. But they can't do that while the Curry team is continuing to contest the election. So Sean Fain issued a statement last week saying, quote, by now the writing is on the wall. Change is coming to the UAW. You, the members, have already made history in this election, and we're just getting started. It's a new day in the UAW. And so his victory really is, I mean, it caps off an incredibly impressive slate of wins by UAW Members United. This is, again, the very first one-member, one-vote election in the UAW to where workers had a chance to directly vote for members of the executive board. And in every single one of the positions that UAW Members United put up a candidate for, they won. And in a lot of them, running away. So they won seven of the board's 13 positions, meaning that, of course, they have a majority on the board and therefore the ability to put into place their program. And this is after 77 years of consecutive control of the union by the administration caucus, including of course the aforementioned corruption investigations from several Mm -hmm. years ago. Wow. That's so long. That is, that is an immensely long period of time. And then also, yeah, you mentioning the corruption it's like, huh? I wonder why all of the workers want this uh, new reform slate that empowers the rank and file and is about to challenge the big three in one of the biggest contract negotiations that exists in the United States. Yeah, and and the way the Curry team is going about this is also incredibly frustrating because it's not like they're like, there was a sack of 10,000 ballots that the Sean Fain team lit on fire, and that's why I lost the election, which would be ridiculous, but it would at least be interesting. (laughs) Instead, it's this, well, there are numerous issues regarding disenfranchisement and campaign violations. Oh, my God. Which, like, first off, that's a boring excuse anyway. But second off, 
you're the incumbent. Right. What? I thought that it was them that was a kind of accused of any of these things. Like, how is the reform slate disenfranchising people? They literally don't have the power to do that. Yeah, it's literally just a bunch of them. Yeah, they're just getting just together like, in big groups and disenfranchising each other. I just no, don't buy it. We we can't let yeah. me lose. I'm the one who corrupted this election. Yeah, well, it's also very funny because, like, just as you said immediately after Dan said that, Lena, like, those are obviously the things the admin slate did, the admin caucus did, and it's like, it's just I. I guess I never get tired of having my mind blown by how everything <laughs> is pure projection. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, look, I, I'm pretty critical of Freud, but he nailed that one. Yeah, that one is <laughs> rock solid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and so the Curry team had been pressing for a, a no, we, we, we got to redo the election. <laughs> the members united, they, they irreparably harmed this. It's like, this is not one of the Starbucks stores. UAW members united didn't get to hold captive audience meetings or like fire Curry admin team workers. It's like you had every advantage in the book as the incumbents and you lost. Take the L. Yeah. Like, look, uh, Dan, they're not mad. They're laughing actually. (laughs) (laughs) And all of their friends are just off frame. That's right. (laughs) Oh man. But, and so on uh, on Monday, the you know with Curry's team still dragging this out because again we've known at least since last Thursday, and really you want to go back a couple of really a couple of weeks that Fain was almost certainly the winner of the election. But Curry's team is still dragging this out, and so uh, Fain put out another statement saying, "quote Once again, Ray Curry is putting his personal interests first and the membership's interests last. Throughout this process, from the one member one vote referendum." To the across-the-board victory for new leadership in every contested election, the membership has voted for change. With all the advantages of incumbency and multiple confirmed election violations on the part of Ray Curry's campaign supporters, the members still chose a new direction. Let's do what's best for the members and get to work immediately, without delay, on charting a new course for the United Auto Workers. End quote. Hell yeah. I'll get the hell, hell yeah. out of that. I mean... It just reminds me so much of uh, when the Teamsters had their election and the reform slate was not allowed into the office until the very, very day they had to hand over the keys. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I'll never forget about that because it's the most petty thing you could ever Mm -hmm. do. (laughs) And it's it's one of those things, too, that is so frustrating because. During, like, the debates and everything, the Curry team was all out there like, hey, let's not be too aggressive against each other, and then completely immediately violated that. But with the idea of, look, we uh, we disagree on how the union should be run, but ultimately we're all in the same union, and when this is over, we're all going to have to be on the same team. And that's true. That's a difference between a union election and, you know, a, an election in a bourgeois fake democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, of course, now that they've lost, that gets thrown out the window completely gone. No, no, no. We're going to contest this till the bitter fucking end. And, and, and that's just something that is very frustrating because like the longer this drags on, the more acrimonious this gets like, while yes, you workers, like UAW members United did, you know, again, sweep those elections. Ultimately the vote count and how close the presidency race was, does show that there is still significant support for Curry amongst at least the, you know, members of the union energized enough to vote. And 
So they are going to have to come together because ultimately, even if you don't like Sean Fain, even if you supported Ray Curry, your enemy isn't the Members United slate. And if you're a Members United member, even though this can be hard to swallow, your enemy is not the people who back the Curry slate, even if they may be wrong about a lot of things. Your enemy is the bosses at GM mm-hmm. and at Ford and at Stellantis. And if you are a, a and the administration of Columbia and all of the, if you're an academic worker, all of the, at, at UC, at all these places, those are your enemies. And while, of course, we always want to reform our union and we, we encourage, you know, workers to build reform movements in their union to make them more democratic, ultimately, at the end of the day, after you go through that process, you need unity. In a union, it's kind of basically the name mm-hmm. uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> in order to maximize your leverage to fight the bosses. And the Curry team dragging this process out and continuing to attack members United and making all of these allegations is just going to make that harder. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's really just, it's it's a full-on demonstration of their lack of commitment to the membership, honestly. Yeah. Right. It's, it, it's very frustrating. And, but... When we look ahead, because hopefully, of course, we do hope this week that this is going to get resolved. I don't know that it will be, but we certainly hope so. That, you know, the monitor will review the challenges and just reject them or say, fine, we're going to investigate one or two things or whatever. Uh, and, and look, if there were people on the Members United slate who violated the, the campaign rules, okay, find that out and whatever the punishment is for that, figure that out. But it's like, that didn't overturn the fucking election. <laughs> like... So, like, you can have those discussions after agreeing that there's a result and we should move forward. So, yeah. so keeping that in mind, though, I think when we zoom out a little bit, like, it's hard to overstate how big of an earthquake this is in the labor movement. Because I, and, it, and it's really following, in so many ways, like, how the TDU reformed the Teamsters, because in the Teamsters' first one-member, one-vote election for their president during their federal monitorship of their union uh, in 1991, the Teamsters immediately elected Ron Carey, a reform president there. They moved on to pass a bunch of Democratic reforms and then have the first major nationwide strike at UPS in years, which really like was a shot in the arm for the whole country's labor movement. So, like... That's the legacy that we're seeing kind of followed here. And now I'm not saying that that necessarily means we're going to see, you know, a, a strike at Ford this year or something, mm-hmm. but it's, it's basically the same general playbook and it's so far yielding pretty solid results. And, and that I think is, is something to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, if you take one thing away from this, it's that if you introduce democracy into a union, it's highly effective at mobilizing and enfranchising the membership. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. it's just so simple. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and I mean, on the thought of, you know, pending or coming up negotiations and such, where we have a story later on in the episode about, you know, a UAW contract but uh you know i i wonder the way that the ford and the big three are going to come down if they are going to also be intimidated by this uaw members united slate because honestly i mean like i said i'm getting ahead of myself in that story i wonder if that happened because of this big reform movement but we'll get to that later 
like wanting to get that contract settled before the new uh, the new reformers got in, and we're like six year contract. We're not signing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, we will keep folks posted on the final resolution of this. Yeah. But in a, another follow-up, we got so many follow-ups. This happens every once in a while. We, we just have like a show full of follow-ups. Um, we Oops, have all been, follow-ups. Yeah. Why can't labor stories take place over six to seven days? <laughs> <laughs> it would be a great convenience to us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, keep keep all the news rolling in, but I mean, like, it does, and uh, unfortunately, this in this case, it would be really great if it stopped rolling mm-hmm. in, because we have covered the newspaper, the, uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and the strike by the Newspaper Guild of Pittsburgh before, and uh, just this past Sunday, the 12th uh, of March, because we're in March, uh, there was an assault on picketing workers where two workers were were brutally assaulted by scabs while picketing the Southside Distribution Center. One of them was hospitalized with a broken jaw that required surgery. And it's really important to remember that originally this striked because the Post-Gazette cut health care for a certain sector of the union. And so then the union went on strike and then as retaliation for going on strike, the Gazette then cut health care for all striking workers. And so these workers who have been then assaulted by the scabs that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette has hired and is trying to break the strike with have literally put these people in a position where they need health care when it has been taken away from them by the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this this whole thing is fucked, and like, it, this is what this strike is also so weird because of the fact that it's a newspaper, and there are a lot of scabs still operating at the newspaper. So the newspaper is still putting issues out. They reported on covering, this themselves. They put right, out their own article about them putting them having scabs beat up picketers. Yeah, so they're like, oh, you can hear our side of the story. I'm like, so what, the lies about that? Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just, it's it's one of those things that to me, I'm always curious. I'm like, if you live in Pittsburgh and you don't follow labor or whatever, are you reading the stories in the Post-Gazette and believing them? <laughs> like, I mean, Because I would po- just think you'd be reading it, and even if you don't know anything about labor, you'd be like, isn't this a conflict of interest? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems so so straight up and down, but like the Post-Gazette has always kind of been like a weird conservative paper with a lot of extra editorial meddling by like the top brass at the institution. So it's like, it's definitely not the cool paper. Although I think the Post-Gazette just bought City Paper, which was the cool yes. paper. So oh, that's tragic. a huge problem. Yeah, very tragic. Yeah, I remember when that happened because there was a lot of people being like, this paper was actually providing good coverage of the strike, and now they aren't. Yep, yep. (laughs) And also, city paper was free and might not be free going forward, which is just a disgrace. Wow. That sucks. It is so hard to find good local news Mm -hmm. uh, because of this shit. But yeah, and and so, I mean, you... you, (sighs) 
It, the other thing, though, that like, because you mentioned, you know, that it's a conservative paper with a lot of editorial interference, and the editor of the paper, the owner of the paper, which, by the way, I saw a picture of the motherfucker that owns this. This this paper is owned by the Monopoly man. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't see a photo of him. He is. It is the Monopoly. It is the guy they modeled the Monopoly man on. Like, I I was amazed looking at the picture that he was. It was somehow not like a hologram with a monocle popping off his face. It's like. <laughs> It is ridiculous that this guy is the, is a newspaper baron in 2023 because it looked like it looks like pictures of him look like they should be in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> like he looks like he's from 1924. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I found him. <laughs> he really does, doesn't he? They have been like their coverage of the strike has, of course, been ridiculously lopsided and anti labor, making all sorts of bullshit allegations, and of course constantly demanding. I mean, they tried to sue the city for not arresting picketers. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this is the level of union busting that that these guys are on and because it's like it's extremely ideological for them. It's like it's uh, you could you could show them that they would make way more money by just meeting the demands and they would never do it because mm-hmm. again, it's not about the money. It's about control. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like if they like that's the thing about free press, Dan, is that if they don't own it, then it's not free. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> if you don't have a privatized press owned by a guy who looks like, you know, he lights his cigars with rolled up $100 bills, then can you really <laughs> say you have a free press? Yeah. <laughs> If your opinions aren't dictated by somebody who hasn't done their own grocery shopping in 25 years, I mean, are you really getting the real news? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but, we do have a quote here from Zach Tanner, who's the interactive designer on the strike, and then and also the president of the Newspaper Guild of, uh, the, of Pittsburgh, uh, who said, quote, We are standing in solidarity with our Teamster comrade who is in the hospital after this appalling assault by, scab wor- by a scab worker hired by the Post-Gazette to break our strike. The Post-Gazette has shown at the bargaining table how little it cares about us. Now they're letting it be known that they'd rather see us in the hospital than serving our community. I sincerely hope everyone working there sees themselves in the assaulted strikers feels the company punching them in the face, crosses the line, and joins us on our side of the picket. End quote. That's right. Yeah, I mean, like, and they've had, I mean, it's a conservative paper. Sometimes, the, I mean, there are there are people who have crossed the picket line on this. It's one of the reasons why they can even run articles, and it, and it sucks. But, like, maybe this will, like, show them that they're not on the right side of this one. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, this is one of those strikes where it's like, I always have to point people to, should we support workers in reactionary trade unions? And I'm like, I have an article specifically written about this from a hundred years ago to explain why the answer is yes. Um, but finally moving off of our follow-ups and I'm going to pause right there and show you guys the picture that I was talking about. Okay. Here we go. Paste it into the notes. Oh my god. Look at that motherfucker. <laughs> he looks like a uh, like a succession character. But you know, he's too old he, school for that. He looks like a madman like uh cosplayer. He, he looks like he should be on Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, this looks like somebody Steve only. Buscemi would smack around a little bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the picture I saw, and I just like lost it. I'm like, come on. Like, if you told me, like, 
strike-breaking newspaper baron who hires vigilantes to fight his own workers, that's the picture I envision. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of old money in Pittsburgh and a lot of people who still have, like, very old ideas about what, like, northeastern wealth should be, like, which is weird because Pittsburgh's not really in the northeast, but they still do that shit. Um, I remember working at a parking lot that was right across the street from a giant, ornate building that just had Millionaire's Club engraved in the front on <laughs> it. oh man well anyways finishing up with our stories that we previously covered speaking of things (laughs) that we need to abolish that's right (laughs) that's right child labor folks we're done with the follow-ups now we're going to continue the (laughs) follow-ups that's right because unfortunately we don't seem to be able to go one week without talking about the explosion of child labor in the United States. I was really hoping that our, you know, big recurring story of the year that we're going to have to put at the top of our, like, you know, roundup at the end of 2023 would be things like academic workers organizing in droves, UPS having their first strike in years, uh, the RMT bringing down the Tory government. <laughs> uh, instead, it's been some of those things, but also the fact that the U.S. is just openly going back to the days of like the 1800s and making child labor legal again. Um, but this week, we got a new story about the ways that this, uh, you know, expansion of child labor has been financed. And this is coming from lever news, which is the outlet that uh, folks may know David Sirota is associated with and has been doing a lot of really good coverage on the East Palestine train derailment. Well, they've been writing about this explosion of child labor too. And the thing that they've discovered with this report that is really perverse is that a some of the companies that have been most egregiously involved in the recent child labor investigations are getting some of their funding basically from the working class in the form of money from state and city workers' pension funds. So specifically, they talk about how Packer Sanitation, the company that we've talked about multiple times where they you know, had kids as young as 13 using caustic chemicals to clean slaughterhouse kill floors in multiple states – that that company has been bought and sold numerous times by private equity firms, which is already a little surprising to me because Packers is a huge company. Mm-hmm. So like the fact that it's changed hands multiple times in the last 10 years is honestly one of the things where I'm like, I'm not really sure this child labor thing is actually as recent as it's being portrayed. <laughs> Uh, and that we may just be learning about it, and it's actually been going on for a very long time, perhaps forever. Um, I mean, I'd believe it. But they have changed ownership many times, oftentimes between various major like financial institutions, especially private equity funds. And right now, they are owned by BlackRock, who I'm sure most of our listeners are at least aware of because they are the largest private equity fund in the world. And, and sponsor manage- of the show, right? That- yeah. <laughs> That's right, folks. Uh, I'm quitting my new job because we are now sponsored by BlackRock, bringing you evil in as many forms as we can possibly invest in. I thought we were sponsored by the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, but... <laughs> well, weirdly enough... Indirectly, (laughs) it's the same thing. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But so, of course, you know, they're now owned by BlackRock, who manage over a trillion dollars in various assets. And the company that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that was at the center of the investigation in Grand Rapids in Michigan on work on child labor in the food packaging business, the company there, Hearthside Food Solutions, also another enormous company, uh, they've also gone through a series of private equity firms 
that owned them. And in both cases, uh, those firms used funding that they got by their ability to manage state and city workers' pension funds in order to pay for the purchase of these companies. And so what that functionally means is that the money that all of these workers, you know, folks who work for, you know, like the city of New York, like we talked about last week, or any city workers, any state workers who have a pension fund, they are putting money every week into that fund so that they will have retirement when they retire, unlike everybody else who gets fucked over and gets the pittance that is Social Security or a 401k, which, you know, evaporates every time uh, the Silicon Valley people decide that they want to invest in the next, you know, juicer that doesn't actually make juice. Picture of a monkey. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I thought I would come up with the most ridiculous answer, but that, <laughs> All that my was apes it. Gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, these workers are saving for their whole lives to do this. And of course, these pension funds become huge. If you uh, listen to our recent series on Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, you'll hear about, you know, some of the ways that pension funds have been misused in the past. Well, right in that tradition is the way that these private equity firms are using the control of these funds to invest in all sorts of horrible shit like this. Like, like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna build your retirement by buying child labor incorporated. <laughs> like, and and, and this really comes down to, I think, ultimately, I mean, obviously, you know, if you can reduce it back to, well, the problem is capitalism, which is true. But more specifically, I think the problem here is, of course, that why are we allowing private capital to manage public pension funds? Yeah, that should be absolutely fucking disallowed. <laughs> like, the, the, the retiree's interest is, of course, to get, you know, have get the best bang for their buck for their retirement investments. That's true. But I would also argue that it is in the retiree's interest that their investments not be made in things they would not want to be investing in. Yeah. Like, like child labor. (laughs) It does start to make you feel a little bit bad about your retirement when all of the money that's in your fund came from like South African Emerald Mind Incorporated or whatever. But it's like, it's even worse because it's, well, maybe not worse, but it's a little bit more appalling to most Americans because this is happening right here in our own country. Mm-hmm. It's not like outsourced to some place you're not familiar with. It's not like this is Grand Rapids. This is where I mm-hmm. used to have to go to go to. This is where I still have to go to go to Costco. This is my backyard, you know? Yeah. And and so, again, I under and I don't because this is the thing. I understand why if you are like an HR or benefits person at a at a city or state government and you're like, all right, we got this pension fund and we keep having all these higher costs and we don't want to raise taxes. So what are we going to do with this fund? Well, you know, who knows how to make funds get bigger private equity. That's their whole thing. BlackRock's huge. They got a trillion dollars. They must know what they're doing. Again, I wouldn't do this, but I understand why people think that way. And they're like, we'll have them manage it. And then we'll get the most money from our growth and investments, and we won't have to raise taxes in order to fund retirees' health care. There was a really great movie about this. It's called The Polka King. It stars (laughs) Jack Black, and I really encourage you to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I I have not seen that one, so I do not get this joke. (laughs) (laughs) You will if you watch the movie. (laughs) There's a lot of financial scammery in that film. (laughs) Everyone check out the classic film, The Polka King. Yeah. (laughs) But 
So, but but the, the problem, of course, becomes the fact that all fund managers, because we are in capitalism, literally have a fiduciary duty to have the funds that they manage produce the highest returns possible with no regards to the morality of that. And so, uh, you know, there has, of course, been some movement in recent years to try and pressure firms to invest less into things like fossil fuels, uh, with has had essentially uh, no results because you have the basically what they'll do is they'll set up a shell fund and they'll just move the investments in the fossil fuels into a different bucket. They're still putting the money into it because it's still profitable, uh, but they make this sort of shell game that makes it look like they're not doing it and makes people feel better. But really, this is the problem. Why is a private company managing public assets? That is really, to me, the core of the problem here. Uh, of course, BlackRock should not exist and should have all of its assets seized and right. its CEOs imprisoned. I mean, but the like, real question is why is pri- why is anything private? But like, you well, know. Right, but but to solve this particular problem, and it, it first is to, of course, thank to, thanks to Le- Le- Lever News for pointing out that the problem exists. But really, I just think the only real way to address this is to take pension funds out of the hands of these private equity companies because there's not, you could put all these regulations like, oh, well, you can't use it on a company that like knowingly breaks the law. But every company has these legal like nonsense where they're like, oh, we didn't know we had a contractor who hired another contractor. And that's how this came about. We didn't know. How could we know? There's too many ways for companies to isolate themselves from liability. Because in this case, you have like the various funds that have owned Packer Sanitation over the last 15 years, the vast majority of which I guarantee you they were using child labor. Uh, They were purchased with funds from public pensions in Pennsylvania, Alaska, Illinois, Kentucky, Michigan, Minnesota, Nebraska, New Mexico, New York, Ohio, South Carolina, Texas, and Washington. So all the most populous states and Alaska. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you really just got to add Florida Florida in there, really, and mm-hmm. you've got the vast majority of the population of the United States, uh, especially because Blackstone currently, while owning Packers Sanitation, also manages the pension funds for New York, California, and North Carolina, Damn. functionally meaning that the workers in those states are funding the continued operation of Packers Sanitation. Now, somebody who's more in tune with the operation of like finances might say, well, you know, those are technically not related. I disagree and don't care. <laughs> It's the same company that owns them. It can move the money around however it wants. It's functionally using the pension fund money to do this. And that's a fucking problem. So, like, I, I, I don't have, like, a... There, I haven't seen, you know, a movement against this that's cropped up, but wanted to bring this to people's attention because, you know, one of the things that we've talked about on the show a lot is that 401ks are fake and that the only real retirement benefit is a guaranteed retirement benefit, something like Social Security, but actually enough money. And that's a pension. Mm-hmm. And it really fucking sucks to have the whole p- pensions are good thing undermined because you have these private equity firms being like, what if we could use something that's basically a universal good to do extreme evil? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. So fuck private equity, take pension funds out of their hands. Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I guess to go back to what I was kind of referring to earlier with the UAW, uh, we kind of wanted to hit like the new Caterpillar contract because unlike many of the other 
like big manufacturing where they make like farming equipment and stuff like that. Uh, businesses like Case New Holland or or John Deere, uh, we've actually not seen a strike because we really expected there to be, I mean, based on those two struggles, to be a giant fight. But before it actually came to a strike, the Caterpillar workers actually ratified a tentatively agreed on contract that would cover about 7,000 workers and also, it's a six-year contract, and that oh. happened uh, back on the fourteenth. And like, there that's too are, many years. It is. It is there. But there are. There's a lot of good. You can. We'll. We'll be able to see why the workers voted set with a seventy-one point five percent in favor for this contract. But also, we'll see why that number wasn't higher um, when we actually go through some of the aspects of this contract. Um, I, I don't have like a ton of like testimonials from the workers or anything like that, but I do have the actual like information from the UAW here. Um, one of the things that they got was raises. So we have to go over six years worth of raises combined. They got about 27%. This year they get 7% raise, but they also get some lump sum years. And that's not lump sum as like a raise it's they instead of a raise get a lump sum which i think sucks but uh because it's similar it's very similar to the thing that we have against bonuses and how they're just bribes um but so in the second year they get four percent of their wage is as a lump sum then year three they get a four percent raise and then year four, they get another 4% lump sum. And then year five and six, they get raises at 4%, which cul- culminates in a 27% ra- wage increase. But those two years with lump sums are, you know, I'm pretty, pretty tenuous on. And apparently a bunch of the workers were also fairly critical of this part of the contract, um, which is pretty understandable. But when we talk about things that they actually got that were really important and good, they got in the contract a moratorium on plant closures, which has been consistently a problem for a lot of these UAW workers who have seen factories closed because the contracts didn't stop the companies from actually eliminating these jobs. And then also, another big one, is they removed tears from the contract. Wow. The exact thing that the UAW has been fighting like saying that they're going to fight for when it comes to uh, the big three and many other contracts, Caterpillar was just like, all right, we're done with tears. And we'll get to a little bit of why that is once we've gotten through this list a little bit, because I do want to come back to it. But then they also got marijuana removed from random and returning drug tests. But the fact that it's literally like, on those two issues makes me think that you still have to pass a weed drug test to get hired. Um, They got a bunch more vacation, PTO, parental leave. They got additional restrictions on temporary assignments, which means uh, not being forced to do extra work for no pay. They got a $6,000 signing bonus and a couple other things, including things like safety language improvements. But I do want to go back real quick to the uh, the t- no-tiered contract and why Caterpillar was so ready to just, like, let that happen. And it's really because they won already. The, the damage is done. One of the things that was pointed out by someone who uh, did some of the analysis on this 
said that uh, when two-tier was initially put into place in 1991, it changed the way that the pay scales worked. And over all of that time, since 1991, it has totally rearranged the way in which workers are paid. And many of the people from the you know pre-2005 era, which is one of the major parts of the two-tier aspect, are not even there anymore. So in 1997... A new, employ- a new employee hired at labor grade one, which I'm guessing is like fairly entry-level position, made about $18.62 per hour. Last year, in 2022, a new employee hired at the exact same grade made $17 an hour. So Caterpillar already won. They don't care that the tears are gone. They're like, yeah. no, we we have actually reduced our costs as much as we could and now we're just going to go with it. When you take inflation into account, that's like a 40% pay cut or something mm-hmm. like that. It's pretty it's pretty insane. I have trouble wrapping my mind around it. Yeah. Um, now like yeah, cuz this is one of those things that sucks because it's like I don't want to come out and say a contract that eliminated tiers is a bad contract. No, it's a good because, contract for the most part. Yeah, like cuz even though, and I'm glad that the because the, the person who 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 you're talking about who did that um, that thread, which was a uh, Brandon, I don't I don't know if it's Manye, it's M A G N E R on Twitter. Uh, it really put a really great thread together about this, uh, and I think it's a really good point that Caterpillar already got what they wanted from the tears, but it was still very valuable to eliminate them because. It, yes, you know, workers have now suffered for decades of lowering and lowering wages that to the point now, again, that the labor grade one workers make significantly less now than they did back in 1997 when tiers were introduced. However, by eliminating the tiers, it does eliminate that artificial, uh, you know, wedge between different classifications of workers because by getting rid of them in this contract, it now makes it harder, theoretically anyway, for Caterpillar to reimpose them later, which is, I think, probably why Caterpillar was so adamant that this be a six-year contract, because it gives them a, like a long period w- before the next round, because the next contract negotiation, you're going to be starting from a contract that does not have tiers. You're going to be starting with a contract that has a guarantee for no plant closures. You're going to be starting with a contract that has all these other good things in it. And so even though the raises are actually pretty weak, like when you, when you, you know, get rid of the lump sums because you can't, those are just bonuses. Those aren't raises. Those don't, those don't increase your base pay. So those don't count. Um, this is really like a, basically an average of about like a 3% wage increase Mm -hmm. every year, which is, like not great during the quote unquote normal period and certainly not incredible now, but by giving the workers a baseline to start with in fucking six years. So in the negotiations in 2029, they'll be starting from a place with no tears. So while their wages are not, you know, incredible, that's an issue they don't have to bargain over. Yeah, that's true. So, do I think this would have been a better contract if it happened in six months with the UAW members United team in charge? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. Probably. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I do st- – look, I don't want to give the Curry team credit or anything, but eliminating tiers is a big deal. Like, 
it, it doesn't have the monetary impact that it would have had it happened years and years ago or had, you know, tears never been implemented in the first place. But getting them out of the contract, I genuinely think, is going to make the next contract fight much more fruitful as far as getting the workers paid. Like, I would expect the raises in the next contract to be, like, basically be like, hey, you know all this inflation that you basically made us eat for the last six years? Well, guess what? We're, we're coming for that. We want that back now. <laughs> so, or at least that would be the tack I would take if I was the UAW. So, like, because... It is frustrating to see, you know, low raises and the fact that the last 25 years have essentially gotten Caterpillar what they wanted out of the tiered contract system. But I don't think we should dismiss the elimination of tiers, and and I do think that's a major win for the workers. And so while there are aspects of this contract we don't like, I do think that ultimately long-term, it's going to put the workers in the next negotiation in a better position to win a really great, like, all-round contract. Unfortunately, that is six years down the road. But to move to our final story for the show, we are going to talk about a we we did put a, a good story at the end of this one, folks. We 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 did our best. We didn't. We're not going to do it to you. What we did you last week. We have seen a union form at Bandcamp. This is a music website that you know a lot of independent artists tend to use, especially considering a lot of. The, actual, the other platforms like Spotify, YouTube, or Prime Music barely pay artists at all, especially independent artists. I mean, I know, John, you can definitely attest to this, that mm-hmm. uh, no matter what platform your music is on, the only one that you get money from is Bandcamp. Yeah, Bandcamp has paid me way more money than any of the other platforms by a factor of thousands, which is crazy because Bandcamp has only paid me tens of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember reading through at one point, there was an article I saw that had a comparison. It was a breakdown of like the the payment per stream mm-hmm. that they pay artists on all these platforms. And look, per one time listening to a song, I'm not expecting you to give the artist $5. <laughs> I know like that doesn't make sense, but the no, it's like nothing. It's, it's wild how the most of these platforms like Spotify are, are just, Hey, we figured out how to legally steal from musicians. Mm-hmm. Well, even the big name musicians who get millions and millions and millions of streams on Spotify, they're not making their money from those streaming services. They're making right. their money from licensing their music out to film and television and playing live performances. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Bandcamp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get all the way into like performing rights organizations and baskets of songs and radios. No, trust me, we don't want to do that. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so one of the things, though, now that's also very cool, in addition to Bandcamp actually paying artists, unlike so many other platforms, now their workers are unionized. Hell yeah. Which rocks. Uh, so last Thursday, the 16th, workers announced that they are forming Bandcamp United to organize collectively to protect their working conditions. They've uh, This move has been in the works for a while now. Uh, workers were prompted to consider organizing last spring when Bandcamp was purchased by, you know, giant mega conglomerate Epic Games, which this article was also the way that I found out that Bandcamp was purchased by Epic <laughs> <Yeah>. Games. <laughs> yeah, this is also news to me. Yeah, I can't yeah, wait to I, have the Bandcamp launcher bug me every time I try to start my computer. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but that that to me, I'm like, all the more kudos to the workers at Bandcamp for attempting to prevent your uh, you know company from being turned into Fortnite. 
Yeah, true. So we had a quote uh, from Cami Ramirez Arau, who's a support specialist at Bandcamp, who told Kim Kelly for Rolling Stone, which, who uh, put out you know one of the first articles about this organizing campaign. And she said, quote, Many of us work at Bandcamp because we agree with the values the company upholds for artists, fair pay, transparent policies, and using the company's social power to uplift marginalized communities. We've organized a union to ensure that Bandcamp treats their workers with these same values, end quote. Yeah, that's very nice. And they're organizing with uh, Tech Workers Union Local 1010, which is part of OPEIU, which is the Office on Professional Employees International Union, which I actually don't know as much about. I guess it's something that I could look into, but it is really great to see these music industry workers organize because I think that it is a a little bit of a bygone era outside of the movie industry for, you know, besides like engineers, because there are a lot of audio engineers who are, are unionized. But again, that's also mostly in movie industries. But like this actual like tech platform that is designed for music is uh, pretty unique. Yeah, I was shocked that uh, the the union covering all of the non-managerial and supervisory personnel at the company only added up to 60 people. I knew Bandcamp was a relatively small company compared to the amount of traffic that it does, but I did not realize that it was l- like less than 100 people operating this website, which, you know, for as much money as does flow through Bandcamp, it really makes me think like these workers are being incredibly exploited. How much money must Epic Games or whoever their fucking boss is directly above them be making off of this? Yeah, it's yeah, probably no a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I also, I will just say, I do think it's very funny because, you know, we talked about uh, how, like, the numbers for union locals don't really, they're, they're not in a sequence or anything, mm-hmm. so they, they the workers just pick them. And I got to assume that tech workers, <laughs> union local 1010 is 1010 because of binary, yeah. because they're all huge nerds. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, uh, which is great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, probably. Well, key issues that the workers are fighting for is ending wage disparities and providing equal pay for equal work. Specifically, workers plan to fight to increase the wages for support staff workers, the lowest paid workers at the company. And workers also want to say in all of the details of their employment contracts, which were updated after the acquisition of the company by Epic, and the workers were forced to just take it or leave it. When the union was, uh, and and hopefully with this union, they're going to get a much better contract and much better conditions. So summarizing these issues that they hope to fix, we have a quote from data analyst Eli Ryder, who also told Rolling Stone as well. The way that the tech industry works is that you have to job hop every one or two years for a title and then pay shift. It feels like in games and music, everyone just expects to burn out. I think that workers deserve fair representation and a proper seat at the table as equals in bargaining for a better working conditions. It's not enough to get small wins alone. I want to see everyone thrive. And I love that sentiment so much because it really it highlights a lot of the different material conditions related to different people in these industries, whether they be tech or similar to like, you know, games and music and and really highlighting those sorts of things yeah it's like the uh it's like the classic i want uh shorter games with worse graphics made by people who are paid more to work less but it's just like i want to buy my music from a service that doesn't just 
burn out all of its employees and expect them to job hop every one to two years. That's got to be grueling. I mean, every time I get a new job, I have like an extended anxiety attack for like two straight weeks. I don't want to have to do that every one to two years. Yeah. yeah, I'm fine with using a music service that doesn't give me a fancy end of the year wrap up with a million analytics as long as they actually, you know, pay their workers a living wage. Yeah, for real. Hell yeah. Well, now is the time for the meme <laughs> review. It's been a long one, folks, and it's going to continue as we go over these beautiful images with words and uh and images and words <laughs> and images <laughs> on them. That's right. As you can tell, folks, it, we are at the minute 30 mark. <laughs> the, the hour 30 mark, which has also melted my brain I, as well. I like minute 30. It sounds like you're, you're yeah. using a cute denomination for it. But <laughs> <laughs> speaking of having your brain melted, we have a meme that is so dank and deep it has returned to normal, which <laughs> yes. is a skeleton uh, lifting weights. And <laughs> for some reason, on top of it, I don't know what muscle tissue you, you would be working on, but it says, My body is a machine that turns labor power into surplus value. <laughs> it's like this is only barely a meme and largely because of the skeleton because yeah, yeah it's like this is that's just yep that's what a worker is I that's mean right. but it, it's a, it's <laughs> a lovely capitalist it's a lovely twist on the my body is a machine meme that's been going around for a while which also again it's nice that we're coming up with new meme templates again they kind of petered out there for a while just saying that's true well which I mean, is why we'll immediately transition into a an old reused <laughs> yeah <form>. an ancient <laughs> meme it's an old meme sir but it checks out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one where there's these kids sitting in like a computer lab and one of them is turning around and pointing kind of in a, I'm going to tell you uh, what what's up kind of thing. And it uh, says, I'm going to say it. Money doesn't buy happiness is a, is a form of gaslighting propagated by the upper class uh, so that you are content with your miserable life and don't demand more. <laughs> and uh, that's true. I just thought it was a, a nice little meme. My f- yeah, it's a it's it, it's a somewhat more scientific way of saying you know they say money can't buy happiness but it can buy a jet ski and when have you ever seen anyone unhappy on a jet ski? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Also, side note, my favorite part of this meme has always been the kid sitting right behind the kid in the front who's kind of doing a thumbs up and <laughs> has yeah. like the flat <laughs> mouth expression. <laughs> so great. <laughs> yeah. So. This next one is from a series of, I think, very recent, uh, like, rips on The Atlantic, uh, uh, a.k.a. The Atlantic Council's favorite magazine. <laughs> so this is a, a a goofy headline from The Atlantic. <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is from McDonald's. And it's <laughs> 20 years from the Iraq war, we ask, were lockdowns to blame? <laughs> Whatever the context, the answer to that question is always yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the Atlantic's law, law of headlines. The answer is always yes. <laughs> I just love this because, you know, I, I was watching the uh, Answer Coalition and all those other organizations and their big rally over in D.C. for the anti-war in Ukraine uh, thing. And they were talking a lot about the Iraq war and it being the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq war, which is that's wild to me and uh the atlantic being a big uh you know what a propagandist of of trying to manufacture consent for that and uh then also mixing that with the covid our lockdowns to blame is just this perfect brain explosion of i fucking hate it yeah. and so i it, i wanted it i wanted this in it, here 
if they had worked a China at what cost yeah. <laughs> into into this, it would have been a mashup of every single Atlantic headline from the last 20 years. Right. That's well, right. And, I mean, everybody keep an eye out for my upcoming uh, article in the Atlantic. Did Putin cause 9-11? No. But what if he did? <laughs> <laughs> You, you joke. <laughs> I am now worried that you have laid of heaven that article into existence yeah. because they would publish. That. We'll see. We will see. <laughs> I bet you could sell them that article. <laughs> <laughs> just, just make up a fake profile that says you used to work for the Manhattan Institute. They'll let you publish. It. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to write under a fake name like Benton McJamison or something. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll work. Speed. Uh, I guess in things you can't sell. Uh, our next one is a glitch art, which I just I just love the aesthetic of this one because it's a King of the Hill meme, <laughs> and uh, this is uh, Hank just looking over at Bobby, and Bobby's fingers are like stretched off the page, and he is like from his like left eye is also blurred off the page. Hank Hill's glasses are duplicated up like twenty times, and it's uh. And I guess Bobby here is saying, it's called Glitch Art, Dad. And then Hank is doing the classic line saying, that boy ain't right. And you know what? Maybe this isn't as good for the meme review because <laughs> it is purely an aesthetic style meme. But this is just uh, going to be my uh, appeal to people to go into the Discord and check out the meme review. Well, it's kind of funny because it's like, what if uh, King of the Hill, but now, like, what if what if Seinfeld was today and Jerry was, like, <laughs> yeah. losing his mind at a phone? Except there is a King of the Hill reboot coming, and we're eventually going to have to hear Hank Hill say, TikTok. <laughs> if 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 I hear the word woke on that show one time, I will immediately turn it off. I mean, he's uh, uh, what's his name, Beavis and Butthead guy. Uh, uh, he's, uh, Mike Judge. Mike Judge. He's been pretty good about that. Uh, he 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 always finds like a, a new and interesting way to make you mad. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. fall back my, on the on the unclever shit. <laughs> my only thing for this meme has been perhaps as a punch up or perhaps just for my own sense of humor. I do think that if we're gonna do glitch art King of the Hill, I wanna you need to you got the window there looking out into the their yard or, or I guess looking out into just Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, they should have like Dale in the window T posing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like I think that would add, like take it up a notch. So that's my my, my recommendation to punch up this glitch like art the breakdancing <laughs> 3D model of Shrek, but it's Dale Grimm. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and speaking of punch ups, that's what our last meme is. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So our last meme is 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 a communal punch up uh, where we this is this is democracy in action. You have workers modifying a placard. Uh, that has been posted in the bathroom. You've got your 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 classic sign: employees must wash hands before returning to work. Uh, but wash hands has been crossed out and just replaced with unionize. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah! Employees must unionize before returning to work. I like it. There's also a couple other words scratched in. Just hugs. Was it say bolus? Bolus. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I love the energy here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now I will say. It does seem like a difficult proposition to unionize your whole workplace in the confines of a bathroom. On the way out but, of the can, yeah. 
<laughs> I believe in the power of the working class. Me so too. So you know what? I'm not going to discount it as a possibility. And also, uh, why do these placards give the customers a pass? They should be washing their hands too, you dirty fucking customers. What's wrong with true. you? Do you wipe your ass with your hand? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to leave you on that question. We're going <laughs> to leave people wondering. That, that's the next thing you should be thinking about because people will be like, oh, I, I, I'm going to be worried about employees not being clean enough. Motherfucker, customers are walking around touching everything in the store. You don't got to be worried about the employees. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap for the episode. If you want to support us as an entirely listener-supported show, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. $5 a month is what allows us to do this show. It is the support that we really appreciate and need. It also gets you access to all of our overtime content. We our shop floor discussions, which we just did one on the on the updates on the rail industry, as well as the big rail disaster in Greece, and that's a, that's a story. So check that out. And you know, if you want to come see these memes, jump in the Discord, write us a review somewhere, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain, follow the Pod at Work Stoppage Pod, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. So I'll keep trying